that alone can be a religion, to try to make yourself right with the world, to prove yourself to be morally superior in some way or another, or even to get to God. And so the idea is, in religion, we're always trying to relink with God. Well, the only true way to relink with God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about several ways that Jesus fulfilled even the Israelite laws that were given by Moses. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, we come to this passage where he talks about the fact that the law, verse 1, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, they can never make those who approach, meaning those who approach with an offering, they can never make that person perfect or mature. And so he says in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so in the old system, the Mosaic law, those sacrifices that they would make could never cleanse your conscience. They could cover your sins. They could make you justified in the sight of God. Even though they had made it this kind of self-righteous system of proving themselves, there were those worshipers that would come with pure hearts. They would come to the Lord and they would say, we've messed up. They would confess their sins. They would make the sacrifices. And when they did that, they would be good with God. He gave them this system to deal with their sin. And so it's not a bad system. It was just a shadow or a foretelling. It was like the preamble to what ultimately God was going to completely fulfill in Christ. Just a small piece. And so it was a preview of what the Messiah would completely accomplish. It was not sufficient. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to repeat. One of the things that this particular passage of verses we, we just read says is that the sacrifice couldn't cleanse their conscience, but what it did do is that it actually reminded them every year that they were sinful. Who, who of us needs more reminders that we are failures? when it comes to the statutes of God. Yeah, me neither. If we've got realistic viewpoints of who we are, uh, well, we don't need reminders. All we got to do is look in the mirror, or we got to realize the last conversation we had with our spouse, or the last time we went off on our kids, or when we got into the argument at work and really got out of hand. All, that's all it takes. And if you have a realistic viewpoint of what Scripture says about you, you go, I'm actually not surprised. God said that I would that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if that's the case, he says when they would go and make these sacrifices, this system was never meant to be the complete cleansing. It never purified and it never cleansed its worshippers' conscience. It might have dealt with their sins practically for a little while, but the next year they were to come and make another sacrifice. And the worshippers would be reminded of their sins yearly. And so you would start to get this feeling in yourself, I'll always have to carry the guilt and work to make up for my sin. And so some of you may be able to relate with this. Maybe you're not so much apt to go, well, I have to go make a sacrifice, but maybe you're the type to go, well, you know what? I did a bunch of bad stuff yesterday. 
So I'm going to do a bunch of good stuff for my family today to make up for it. Maybe you're the type to go, well, there, there are people that go, well, I, I, I can't always make the church, so I'll do something for God, and then he'll be pleased with me, as if coming to church is what makes God happy with us. So that's a works-based salvation. So that's, I don't know about you guys, but you see that picture there? I've got a checklist, so that's like checking the box every time. But then uh, my daughter loves I Love Lucy. Imagine that. Lucy loves Lucy. Um, but I have for you there a very classic episode. As a matter of fact, if you buy, you go to the $5 movie bin, start digging through the thing, you're going to find I Love Lucy in there, and it's going to have that episode on that disc. I don't care what disc it is. And it's the one where Lucy decides we can make our own money. We don't need our men. And so her and her neighbor, which I cannot remember her name right now, Ethel, Ethel. So Ethel and Lucy decide we're going to go get jobs. So they go to the employment office, and essentially they don't have any marketable skills for the jobs that are available. So they lie, and they're going to prove themselves worthy of their husband's respect. So they get these jobs, and when they get these jobs, one of them is to actually go in and take this chocolate and dip it, and they have to do this little thing with their hand that they've never done before, but they're acting like it. You know, fake it till you make it. And before you know it, they start ramping up production. And they have to get everything that goes by them. And if they don't, then they don't get the job. So in order to keep the boss from seeing that they don't know what they're doing, they start shoving them in their mouth and in their pockets, and they start running out of room. And, and so then they've done it, right? They've proved themselves. Except then the boss comes out and goes, oh, you guys are doing great. At least it looks like it. Ramp it up to the real speed. And then they start speeding it up. And of course, it gets worse. And so religion is like that. You're always trying to do better. My daughter's in the phase right now where when we point out the fact that she's disobeyed, she'll look at us and go, I'll do better next time. And I keep trying to tell her, I, you're going to wear yourself out. You're probably not going to do better until your heart changes and you want to do better before I, you get in trouble. And, and so... Trying to please God is literally like these ladies. You try, you try, you try, the speed goes up, you try harder, and you fail harder. And before you know it, you're just exhausted. And many of you, if you're trying to do that, you're going to come to a breaking point, and you're either going to go, I need the grace of God, and I need to trust His sacrifices enough, or you're going to come to the point and go, I'm done, I can't please God. And then you're going to walk away. So that's, that's the bad news. The law was never meant to save. It was only meant to point us to the Savior. And so as we go to the next slide, let's talk about the good news. The new covenant. So, oops. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 says this, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, this is speaking of Jesus, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. The book It is written of me to do your will, O God. And so he quotes there from Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, which I would submit to you is actually a messianic psalm. These are words that are attributed to Jesus that were prophetically spoken through the psalmist. And so the Old Covenant is mentioned in verse 5 and 6, where it says there, sacrifice and offering 
you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. So there's a passage in, in Samuel where King Saul has actually been told by the Lord to go into the land, and he wanted them to defeat and utterly destroy this people and get rid of all their stuff, including their animals. Don't take any of it for yourselves. I want you to burn it all or kill it all or whatever. Essentially, he was judging those people because they had rejected his grace for so long. And so when he went in there and did that, he obeyed, he killed the people, but he kept the animals. And so when Samuel finally gets there, he goes, hey, have you done what the Lord told you to do? And he said, well, of course I have. I've been obedient. And he said, well, what's this bleeding of lambs and goats that I hear? And he says, well, I, uh, and he comes up with a religious reason to disobey. He says, well, I was, I kept these back because, I mean, I just don't want to kill them. We can make sacrifices with them. We can use them to worship. And Samuel says to him, to obey is better than to sacrifice. It wasn't so much that they were killing things and sacrificing them. It was that they were doing it because God prescribed it that way. In the case of Saul, he was told to do what? To utterly wipe it all out, to not keep any of it for himself, even for religious reasons. And so in the Old Covenant, what we find out is that God didn't necessarily just desire sacrifice and offering in this empty worship system, but he prepared a body for him. Now, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint, which to many of you, you won't care. So just bear with me for just a moment. But if you turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 40, what it'll say is that in this particular verse, it will say, he has opened my ear. And the tense there is, instead of saying, a body you have prepared for me, he says, you have opened my ears. Okay, so does the Bible contradict itself? What's going on? Well, the idea behind his ears being opened, many think, has to do with Exodus chapter 21, which talks about what would happen if a slave was indentured servant to his master, was repaying his debts by debts, not dents, by serving his master, and they would take, after being a slave and paying off their debt, if they saw that they had it way better and they wanted to become a, a, a bond slave, which was a free will slave, they would take an awl or an ice pick, like we would think it, they would put it in the earlobe and they would pierce it and put a gold ring and that would signify to everybody, I'm this person's servant for life because I want to be. But that's not the tense of the word when he says, he has opened my ears. The opening in the ears, that word open means to dig and it means that he's cleaned my ears out. He's prepared a body that's willing to heed the word of the Father. And so it he was pleased to do the will of the Father in everything. So in the Messianic Psalm here, what he's saying is God had given me a body so that I could be a willing servant of his and do only his will and not mine. I know that's a long way to come around, but sometimes we need to point out these contradictions in Scripture or seeming contradictions because words mean things. They just do. And so here we have the Messianic Psalm saying, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have given me or prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you really didn't have any pleasure. You, he cared more about the heart of the worshiper than what the worshiper offered. And so here we have in verse 7, 
Then I said, these words attributed to Jesus, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. So all of the book, the book that we carry, the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus. So if you say you're only a New Testament Christian, you're missing out on all that was foretold about Jesus. It's all about him. But then as you get to the latter part of verse 7, it says, It is written of me to do your will, O God. Not my will be done, but yours. That surrender to the will of the Father. So we have the New Testament mentioned there in verse 7. So the explanation of the verses from Psalm chapter 40 is in verse 8 and 9, where he says this, Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor did you have any pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first commandment, or the first covenant, that he may establish the second. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so he says, I've come to do your will. So we're going to focus in on that particular thing because God's will, according to verse 10 here, from the beginning of time, God's plan and his desire, his purpose, his will for us is that we would be made holy. Holy, set apart for God's purposes. Sanctified is the word. Holy is not anything that you and I have ever seen in this life. But he says it was his will to be made, that we would be made righteous, justified, holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that once for all made me think about the finishing work of Christ. Because in John chapter 19, turn there with me, there's this word that we can find nowhere else in the Bible, the Greek word in verse 28 and in verse 30. Jesus is on the cross in the context. John is writing and he has just gotten done kind of testifying how Jesus had spoken to his mom and said, here's your son, John's going to take care of you. And he's, Jesus is kind of dealing, with, he's setting his house in order as he's getting ready to give up his spirit. And in verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. So it says there in verse 28, knowing that all things were now accomplished. And that word is the same word we'll see in verse 30, which is tetelestai. And tetelestai means to be paid in full. It says there in verse 29, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So that word, again, it is finished. I'm going to get out my little phone here because I looked it up this morning and I didn't have time to put it in the notes. But what it says here, literally translated, the word tetelestai means it is finished. This word occurs in John 19, 28, and 30. And it's nowhere else in the New Testament. 
And so then it goes on to say the word to telestai was also written on business documents in that day or receipts to show indicating that a bill had been paid in full. So gone are the days where we go to the office and pay the bill. Many of us pay online. But still we get an email sometimes that looks like it's been digitally stamped that says paid in full. And if you're the type that keeps paper records, you can pay you can print it, you can put it in your file cabinet, and then burn it next year. I don't know what you do with it. But we keep it, right, for records. To prove, if anybody ever comes back to us and says, hey, you forgot to pay your water bill, you can go, nope, got a receipt. It says paid in full, it's initialed and dated by so-and-so that works the desk. You got proof. And so, um, but the Greek-English lexicon says that receipts are often introduced by the phrase to telestai usually written in an abbreviated manner. The connection between receipts and what Christ accomplished would have been quite clear to John's Greek-speaking readership. So he's using a word that the common people in that day would totally understand. It would be unmistakable that Jesus Christ had died to pay for their sins. That's what John is teaching in John chapter 19. And so we in like manner, need to be able to embrace that when he says it is finished, he's saying not it's finished, but we'll have another payment later. You and I don't know what it's like to be finished paying for something. Now, many of you might say, well, I'm debt-free now. Oh, yeah? Do you have to pay taxes every year? You're never done paying for it. It is finished is just something we don't get to experience. But in Christ, the debt that we owe Jesus, the debt that we owe God, a holy God, is completely paid for. You are spiritually debt-free. Nothing. No condemnation, no guilt, no shame, no burden. Done. Put a note on the fridge, magnet it up there, and just look at it once in a while. It's freeing. If you've ever paid off a debt and it's weighed on you for years, and you put that thing on the fridge, you just see that thing, it's like, yes! I don't have to worry about it anymore. But we always find another way to spend that money. You know, we're like that. So, <clears throat> I'm done on that hobby horse. I think it's something we need to be constantly reminded of. So verse 14, well, let's read. Back in Hebrews, verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So, I put up there for you, I thought I was pretty clever, lather, rinse, complete. Now, if you've ever heard or read the bottle for shampoo, what's it say? 
lather, rinse, repeat, right? Because even soap doesn't get you as clean as it can when you use it the third time. Pretty sure that's a ploy so that you use more soap and you got to buy more. But that's just me. I'm but in this case, it's lather, rinse, and then complete. You're done. Completely cleansed. Not only on the outside, but also on the inside. Our consciences are removed from the guilt. And so forever made perfect. So focus in on verse 14, because this is kind of where my eyes went as I read this passage. I believe that this is the key verse of this complete chapter. Verse 14. For by one offering, no longer a need to repeat, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Notice the word perfected. I just know a little bit about that means it's already been done forever that's kind of a long time see what we do in our language is we tend to use hyperbole or we might exaggerate you know if you've ever watched duck, duck dynasty the uncle Cy on there he tells stories he goes never let the truth get in the way of a good story right my stories are 99 percent true but the problem is with that we tend to kind of inflate words to make it sound like it was more awesome than it was. But the Bible does not exaggerate. It uses very careful and specified words so that we can get the truth, not the inflated truth. And so when it says that by one sacrifice, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, wait a minute. This is a grammar problem if you're an English teacher because he's used the past tense, and then he's finished the sentence with present tense. Those who are being sanctified are already sanctified. Which is it? Are, are we already sanctified? Or is he sanctifying and setting us apart right now? You want my answer that people don't like? Yes. You, if you are in Christ, each one of you, me, if I am in Christ, I am completely perfected forever by the blood of Jesus, by his death. You're free. Your debt's paid. You can go home. There's nothing else to learn. If we stop there, we're good. Except one of the things that Christians don't realize is that though we are perfected forever, signed, sealed, deliver, delivered in heaven, he's still working on us here because you and I all know that we got stuff that is not where it's supposed to be yet. And if you think you don't, then you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. He who thinks where he's, he's where he's supposed to be, take heed because there's probably still some things that you're blind to. God, take off our blinders so we can see ourselves like you do. Not to beat ourselves down, but then to be emboldened to go, Lord, I'm not like you yet. Change me. And we're going to get to that point. But So here he says he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So he says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he has said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. And he quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, I think verse 33 and 34. And basically what it says is, I will make a new covenant with them, says the Lord. And we already quoted that a couple weeks ago or maybe last week. But he says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. 
And he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will not remember anymore. He's choosing to forget the handwriting of requirements against us. And so Philippians chapter 1, I skipped a couple verses there. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he actually says, be (laughs) encouraged because the work that God has began in you, he is the one who will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So there's, again, scripture teaching that we are perfected, he's began the good work, and he will complete it. And then in Romans chapter 8, don't want to miss out on the the food that's there in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It says there, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to, there's that phrase again, the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, God's will, God's purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's God's will that we be conformed into the very likeness and the image and the character of Christ. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, or the word is made righteous, past tense again. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So it's finished. The old covenant worshiper could not say that he had no more consciousness of sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. But the new covenant believer can say that his sins and his iniquities are remembered no more. Now, that's a truth that we have to take on faith because it doesn't always feel that way. So the question is, are we going to live our Christian life guided and governed by our feelings, how we feel at any given moment, or guided and governed by what God's word says? Is what God has said enough for you? That takes faith. And what we're going to find out, this is all leading to chapter 11, where he says it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, verse 19. He says there, verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated, or sanctified, set apart for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised in some translations it says can be trusted god can be trusted but he says he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And in some of your translations, it might say, so much more as we know that Jesus is coming soon. And so we have bold entry. How many of you have ever purchased VIP passes to go see a concert? We have. When the David Crowder band became uh, Crowder and the Digital Age, any of you have probably never heard of them because they kind of fell off the scene and went to Brazil and they felt called there. But they started doing music and I wanted to meet them. So my wife surprised me with VIP passes, which means we got to go eat grilled food with them behind the Civic Center. We got to play hacky sack which I'm still good at, so if you want to show down, let's go. And we also got to just say hi and take pictures with them, get to meet them, and compare beards, you know, and do ridiculous stuff, full access, right? Now, in order to get full access, what do you got to do? You got to pay up. You got to shell out some cash. Ain't no regular concert ticket. And then the thing says VIP, all access backstage. Here's my question for you. At the high cost of a VIP pass, do you actually get full access? No. And you wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want it. Full access means you're with them all the time. I'm imagining they're going to have to use the restroom at some point. I'm imagining they don't want you to see their messed up bed in the camper or whatever they're driving. I'm going to imagine that they're not as great as we might think that they are, even though they play great music. We don't want full access. Or maybe we do, and then we find out what they really are, and then we may not. <clears throat> but my point is, it's, it's not really all access. We don't get all access to any human being. But we do get access, of all people, to Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator, the one who breathed life into our flesh and bones, the one who is the beginning, the one who is the end, the one who knows how our life will end. The one who knows how he's going to bless us and the suffering he's going to take us through. The one who knows the deepest and darkest secrets of our hearts and still loves us. Full access. Nobody else offers that. But it was purchased just like VIP tickets at a very high cost. The blood of his son. Death on the cross. But our sins are dealt with we're accepted in. We get full access. I leave the door unlocked. My kids run in and I'm in the middle of studying. They got full access. I delight when they do it most of the time. You know, but what you get is a full access backstage pass to God and you find out that he's all that he ever said he was. No veneer, no hiding. He is God in the flesh. So let me ask you this. If someone gave you VIP tickets, would you take full advantage of that? Probably, right? Even if it's not even somebody you, you want to know. Like, hey, I'd love to meet the Oak Ridge Boys. We did that. I didn't even know who they were. I got to meet Marty Stewart. You know? That guy is very girly. That's a lot of hairspray. Lots of color in the jackets. I was a little like, who? M Marty, huh? That could be a girl's name. I don't know. You know, great music. Um, but do we take full access, excuse me, full advantage of our full access pass to Jesus? And I would submit to you many times we don't. So why not? 
<clears throat> but then he goes on to say in verse 23, let us notice this passage. I, I underlined it in my book, but in verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. There's two lettuces in there. Now, if you don't like salad, you can enjoy these lettuces. And then in verse 24, let us consider one another. So let us draw near, let us hold fast or anchor ourselves and confess that Jesus is Lord through our daily lives and let us consider one another. And I'm going to camp here for a little bit because we don't typically draw near to God. We actually typically draw away from him, especially if we got things that we're not dealing with and not confessing. We don't typically anchor ourselves to the hope that we have in Christ. We anchor ourselves to things that are temporary. We just got done with Thanksgiving. We anchor ourselves to the thought that we could all get together on Thanksgiving. But it doesn't always happen. It's not always possible. Is that where our hope is? But then he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So notice the trinity of the fruit here. Faith, hope, and love. Let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Love. He says, let us do these things, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but instead exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day of Christ approaching, the day of his return. So even though I've got plans to keep going, I'm going to stop here this morning for time's sake. And I'm going to end on this note because one of the things that I've noticed in the body of Christ and I've experienced personally is that when we start to falter in faith, one of the most likely things for us to do is to forsake the assembling together with other Christian believers. And when we do that, that actually hinders us more than helping us. Notice what it says there is the reason to join together for fellowship with other believers. He says, let us consider one another. Let us hold tightly to our hope in Christ. Let us do these other things. But he says, let us consider one another. So many times, and we as American Christians are the worst at this. And I say that because I'm one. And I think that we're one of the worst at it. We consume. We're consumers. We come to get. You go to Walmart, you're not going there to give. Although you do end up giving, right? But you go there to get. You don't go most places that you go. You're going to work to serve so you can get. But in the body of Christ, he says, let us consider one another. And then he says, don't forsake fellowship as the manner of some. But instead, he says, <laughs> assemble together, exhort one another, or strongly encourage. And he says, and so much more as you see the day approach, to stir one another up to love and good works. So instead of coming to church expecting to receive, which I'm guilty of at times, come to church ready to stir. Come to church ready to give. And I don't mean financially. I, what I mean is that we have been put in this body of Christ, which is a manifold witness of the existence of God here on earth. 
And each one of us has been gifted by God to serve the body of Christ for the strengthening and the building up of the body. And the head is Christ. We all have been given gifts to serve one another. What is your gift? And let me submit to you that if you will constantly, as much as you can, I recognize the practical stuff that comes up where you can't get to church. But if you will practice this very little thing, that's a huge thing, show up. Be present when you're here and pour into others. What happens is that you will stir one another up to love others the way that you love them. But you'll also find that as you are trying to pour into others, you will have need and then you will go boldly back into the throne room to receive from Christ so that you have something to give. You are not called to be the source. You are called to be the conduit. You're, some of you are going, well, I don't have anything to offer. Then you're not spending time with Jesus because every time we spend time with Jesus, he's going to give us something that we can turn around and give to each other. Andrew got the, one of the disciples, he, he took the bread that a little boy gave him. He took the fish. He gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to the disciples. The disciples had nothing to give the 5,000 people. They had nothing. Actually, they were all explaining to Jesus how it was impossible to feed them. Send them back to town. We're busy. We don't have anything. We've got to feed ourselves. And that's our attitude. Many times, I can't feed anybody else. I'm trying to feed myself. But here's the deal. He who waters will himself also be watered. If we will absorb what God's given us and give a portion back to God's body, the people of God, we will in turn be nourished by what we feed on. Does that make sense? I've found that as I've matured in Christ, the more I serve, the more I feel worn out, and the more I go back to Jesus. The less I go back to whatever thing that makes me comfortable or makes me feel like I can get rest. You know, as much as I enjoy my favorite TV shows, there are some times where I need to click the thing off and spend time in the Holy of Holies with Jesus. And that's where I get refreshed. That's where I get renewal. And then I have something to give the next person that comes to me. Now, you might say, as a pastor, you're, I, you probably see more than, of that than I do. Only because you're not filled. If you will get filled up with Jesus, Jesus will send people that you can pour into. I promise. So that's... Uh, that said, let's, let's close there today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is perfect and that it has all the right portions of what we need, not only to survive as believers, but to actually thrive. We're getting ready to head into winter. We've got all these activities going on. We've got busy schedules, I guarantee. And I know that I'm not the only one. But I also know that we are connected through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we've been given relationship with the life giver. And so, Father, help us not to be those who are continually exhausted. Help us not to be those who are trying to prove ourselves to you. Help us to be those that can rest, truly rest, in the peace that's given when we recognize that all of our debts have been paid for and we just get to worship you for it and thank you. Father, please give us a desire to hold fast the confession of our faith, to not waver. Give us the desire and the heart 
to truly anchor ourselves to the hope that is in Christ. And help us during this season of dark early, dark late, constant stuff to do, not to forsake the stirring up of one another in the body of Christ to love and to good works. In this season of darkness, it doesn't take much light to make a bright and shiny testimony of what you're doing in our lives. So, Father, whatever it is you're calling us to, I pray that you would show us and give us the faith to exercise those gifts. Thank you for Jesus who makes it all possible. In Jesus' name, amen.